The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. So we're starting uh, really diving into this book of Colossians, okay? And today we're going to deal with one of the most frightening questions that we can ever ask in life. This is the type of question that, that it freezes us. It, it truly freezes us in our shoes because we don't know what to do with it. And the question is this, what is God's will for my life? Now, unless this is the first morning that you've ever heard the word God, probably you, like me, have dealt with, have wrestled with this question of what is God's will for my life. It seems like at every stage in our lives, there's yet another opportunity to decipher this mysterious, even obtuse concept of God's will for my life. Just Friday night, right here at Waz, was graduation, right? Was anybody here for that graduation? All right, we got a couple that were here. Okay, just Friday night was graduation. Do you remember the countless decisions that you had to make during that season of your life? Okay, am I going to go to college or not? If I am going to go to college, what college am I going to go to? Am I going to go to the military or not? If I am going to go to the military, what branch of service? Am I going to get a job first and then pay my way through college? Or am I just going to take out a bunch of loans and hope that when I'm done with college that i got a good enough job that I can pay back all these loans, et cetera, et cetera, on and on. I mean, these questions, remember that season in life? These questions are difficult on their own, but then you throw in this question, this concept of what is God's will for my life, this thinking that of all the options out there, there is one that is the correct one, and if we don't choose that one, then the rest of my life, I'm out of God's will, and, and, and is there even a way back into his will? I mean, does God give will mulligans? Oh, he does? Good. How many? How many will mulligans does he have? I mean, we're just simply talking about the numerous but relatively few decisions when it comes to graduating high school, all right? What about once you get to college? What, what are you going to study? What is God's will for me to, to study? Or what, what, what career to pursue? Who to marry? How many kids am I going to have? Am I going to buy a house or am I going to rent a house? Am I going to borrow money or am I going to save up and pay with cash? What about beef or chicken? What about flip-flops or tennis shoes, satellite or cable? And the biggest question of God's will ever in our lives, Republican or Democrat? Right? I mean, I know that got weird there at, at, towards the end. But, but the point simply is that we all do this. We, we all struggle with this concept in, this, in, our, in our world today, especially in American Christianity, of zero in on the exact will of God for my life and everything else is outside of that. And then we just get frozen. We just get frozen. We just get frozen. Red pill? Blue pill, come on, Nemo. Ne not Nemo. Ne What's his name? Ne what is it? Neo. Yeah, red pill, blue pill. I don't know. It, we just get frozen. We just get frozen. It freezes us. It causes us to think that the actions and the decisions that we're going to make, you know, what, what school to go to, what type of car to get, you know, how much should I give on a monthly basis to the church. It makes us think that if we choose wrongly, then we are outside of God's will. Listen, this thinking this thinking that if we make the wrong decisions, that the, then the rest of our life is spent trying to make up for this initial wrong decision. And when that happens, then guilt ensues. And what always comes to party with guilt? Condemnation always comes to party with guilt. So what is God's will? Is it real? Is there, is there a God's will? I mean, is there such a thing? Is it wrong for us to pray and seek God's wisdom for these types of decisions in life, big decisions and small decisions? Of course not. 
But what we're going to see today is that God's will for our life is much bigger, much bigger than should I buy or should I rent. It's much bigger than college or military. It's much bigger even than who I should marry. These are all incredibly important decisions I think we'd all agree with, right? These are all important. And these are all important decisions that we need God's wisdom, we need God's insight, we need godly counsel. But when it comes to this question of what is God's will, man, this is, this is huge. This is something much bigger. And so the question I have for you is, do you want to go with me into Colossians chapter 1 and figure out what God's will truly is? I hope so, because that's what we're going to talk about for like the next 30 minutes. Okay. So, so hopefully you say yes, okay? Hopefully you say yes, but hopefully you don't say yes in search of God's will of who to root for, the heat or the spurs, okay? Hopefully that's not your, your desire. My desire this morning, if we could achieve one thing, my hope is that we will all experience the freedom that is found in Christ when it comes to God's will. Current teaching of God's will has done anything but create freedom. In fact, it's created bondage and slavery, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says that Christ has set us free for freedom's sake. We're set free to be free. What that tells me is that God does not want us squirming around in this world where he's sick about the decisions that we're going to make and afraid that if we make the wrong decision, then we're outside of his will for the rest of our life, and it's just up to us to, to try to get back into his will. So let's quickly look at what God teaches us through Paul about his will. And I think this is going to be revolutionary. I really do. I think we, if, if you grab onto what Paul is teaching here, you really could go from, from literal consumed over every single decision, worried that God is, is, is upset with you because you made a right or wrong decision versus this freedom that we truly have knowing what God's will truly is. So we've started this short letter that Paul writes to this, this, this people in Colossae. All right, the town is in what we would call present-day Turkey. The best we can determine, Paul never ever met the people that he's writing to. But Paul is in prison in Rome, and it seems as though he has called several of his uh, friends, people that he has mentored, it seems as though he has called them to his side to, to get a report of what God's been doing in and around all the churches that he has been a part of planting. So Paul's sitting in prison. He's only a year or less, maybe more, from his own death. He spent 30 years. So this is the end, towards the end of Paul's life. He spent 30 years being pulverized for telling people about Jesus. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been uh, stoned. That, 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 that means these big rocks stone on him, not, you know, like the 70s. Um, he's been rejected. He's even been bitten by poisonous snakes, all because... He won't shut up about Jesus. So he's in prison. He's called these, these friends to him. You can read all their names in chapter 4 of Colossians. And he's hearing the reports, and he's sending out letters to all these churches. So this letter called, that we call Colossians is one of those letters. A guy named Epaphras, who Paul apparently has mentored, he's come to Paul. He's encouraging Paul as Paul is in prison, and he's sending this letter back to the church in Colossae to encourage them. And right here at the beginning of this letter, Paul spells out God's will, God's desire for what the believers in Colossians are to be about. We're going to pick up in verse 3. We, this is Paul and Timothy, if you go back to verse 1, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now look at this. 
Why in the world are Paul and Timothy always thanking God when they pray? For, they don't even know these guys. What are they thanking God for every time they pray for them? Well, look at verse 4. We thank God since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the, the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So Paul and Timothy are jacked up with joy and thankful hearts all because of the fact that these true pagan uh, Gentiles are now believing in Jesus. This faith in Jesus is, is, is producing a love towards other believers. Now, now this is true life transformation. All right, th- this area of Colossae, th- 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 these guys didn't grow up with a Judeo-Christian set of values. Okay, these are true pagans. They didn't have love towards anybody or anything. They were reckless and ruthless, but their faith in Jesus had changed them. It had totally changed them. Their hate was now love. And Paul says that their faith in Jesus and their love towards others has happened because of the hope that's laid up for them in heaven, because of the hope laid up. Now, um, let's ponder on that thought for a second. Hope laid up in heaven. What is that? What is our hope laid up for us in heaven? What is this hope? Uh, Some people say it's a bunch of treasure. Some people say it's gold. Some people read uh, like John 14 and say it's a mansion. Some people say it's clouds. And so our hope in heaven is all, this, all these possessions, all this stuff, gold and, and mansions and crowns. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's it. But that certainly sounds a lot like the Christian version of Islam's uh, 72 perpetual virgins, right? Maybe that's it. Maybe it's gold and mansions and big, you know, uh, big things where big yards and we can play big football and all that kind of stuff. But but what is it? You really think that it's possessions, it's stuff that has caused these pagans to have faith towards Jesus and love towards each other? Maybe, but I don't think so. I want to cut to the chase real quick because we're going to run out of time. I, I think that this hope that they have put their, their trust in and their faith in is really just one thing, and it's one person. I want to submit that it's Jesus. I just think it's Jesus. Jesus is the hope that has been stored up for them in heaven. Uh, Jesus says, whoever believes in Jesus will not, what? Perish, John 3, 16, but have everlasting life. So I think that this hope stored up for them is Jesus and everything that goes along with Jesus, namely life. And later in this chapter, Paul puts it really, really clear that Jesus in them is their hope of glory. So the hope that's stored up for them, it's Jesus. It's not stuff. What does stuff, how can stuff compare to Jesus, right? I mean, we have stuff here and we're not happy. You get more stuff, you're not happy. It's Jesus that's been, that, that, that is, is ready, and ready for them as they enter into this thing of heaven. It's stored up for them, this hope of this perfect, no sin union with Jesus. It's, it's, it's like after 30 years of being beaten and tortured for Jesus, Paul just can't get enough of it when he hears that this message of Jesus and this message of life in Jesus is still working. It's still saving sinners. And Paul goes on to say, of this, okay, for all of English majors, anybody do English when you're in high school? Okay, so you have this word, this. This is a, uh, what is that, a, 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 a demonstrative pronoun, right? Something like that. But it refers to something. What do you, what do you think this refers to? What's the antecedent of the pronoun? For those who like, know what that means which I don't really know what that means, <laughs> of this hope, of this hope. And who's the hope? Come on, Jesus. Of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. This gospel which came to you 
as indeed it came to the whole world and is bearing fruit and is increasing. It also, as it also does among you since the day you first heard it, heard it, it being the gospel. And you understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learn it from Epaphras, our fellow servant. He, Epaphras, is a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Again, we presume that Paul has never, ever met these guys. Paul wasn't the one who told them about Jesus to start with. It was Epaphras. As best as we know, Paul doesn't even know these guys he's writing to. But he's writing to them like a proud parent who is rejoicing in the reality of what's happened. So what's happened? We just read a bunch of verses, but what's happened? What, what's the, what, what really is it that has gotten Paul so excited, so thankful to the point that every time he prays for them, he can't help but have a praise and worship time with like, you know, Chris Tomlin playing or something, thanking and praising God for what has happened in Colossae. What is it that's happened? Well, in a nutshell, what's happened is that the gospel is working. In verse 5, Paul says, of this, this hope, this, this reality of Jesus, you've heard before in the word, the true word, which is the gospel. They've heard the gospel, and verse 6 says they've understood it, which means they're believing the gospel. And the gospel's a big word. So let's just take a quick time out. What does gospel even mean? What does the word gospel mean? Is it a type of music, right? A gospel music, you know, for the, I guess the, uh, well, then you got Southern gospel music. You know, it's another type of, of music. Maybe it's a TV station, right? You got the gospel channel, you know, you got the gospel network. Maybe it's a coalition. You know, a bunch of smart people get together and write stuff about stuff. So it's gospel coalition. It's the name of a church. You know, you got gospel Baptist church, you know. What is gospel? Have you really stopped to, to think about that? What really is the gospel? Well, instead of me taking a couple of minutes to tell you what the gospel is, I think it makes sense for us just to read what Jesus says the gospel is. Don't you think that's a good idea? I mean, if you could hear me and my words talk about the gospel versus Jesus and his words talk about the gospel, I think it's a good idea to go with Jesus, right? I mean, I think, you know, I like doing what I do, but let's just go with Jesus, okay? So if you want to turn over in your Bibles, we're going to put it on the screen, but turn over to Matthew chapter 12 and check this out. Matthew chapter, so here's the question. What is the gospel? It just simply means good news it's just a word that means good news and so we're going to hear jesus talk about this good news matthew chapter 12 at that time jesus went through the grain fields on the sabbath you got to remember that on the sabbath his disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat but when the pharisees saw them they said to jesus look your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, for those of us who are like, big deal, like what's the problem here? They're just like plucking grain and eating it. Well, it was against the rules and the tradition of Judaism. On the Sabbath, which is like sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, there was to be no working at all of any type. Even plucking grain to eat was just simply illegal, okay? I know it's hard for us to understand, but that's the way it was. It was illegal for them. And the disciples of Jesus are doing what is illegal, okay? Verse 3, he, Jesus, says to them, the Pharisees, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? Have you not read this? Like, do you not read the scroll that you guys supposedly read? 
Verse 4, how he, David, entered the house of God and he ate the bread of presence. Now watch this. Which it was not lawful for David to eat, nor those who were eating with him. But it was only lawful for the priest to eat. Now, what's happening here? So David, King David, he broke the law, but he was not condemned. Why? Why was he not condemned? Well, the bread is bread of presence. The bread itself was the picture, a symbol of the very presence of God. David took the bread, even though it wasn't for him, and he put it in him, and he was nourished by it. And in John 6, Jesus identifies himself as the fulfillment of that picture, the fulfillment of that bread from David's day when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. So you got to see this picture. Jesus is saying that David wasn't condemned because the bread that was a picture of Jesus's presence had come into David. You see that? The very presence of God, a picture of it, had now come into David. And so he wasn't guilty because the very presence of God was in him, a picture of it. Now Jesus continues, verse 5, or have you not read in the law? It's like, okay, you guys who go by the law, you who, have you not read the same law? How on the Sabbath, this, this Saturday, Friday uh, sundown to Saturday sundown, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane. Let that word sink in for a second. The priests on the Sabbath profane the Sabbath, yet are, and say that word, say it real loud, guiltless. You say, have you not read in the law where the priest, even though they profane it, how do they profane it? How do they profane the Sabbath? They profane it by working on the Sabbath. There's no time off. There's no chairs in the temple. There's no time off. It is all the time they're making sacrifices for the sin of the people. They are working themselves literally to the bone, performing these sacrifices after sacrifices after sacrifices for the sin of the people. Every single Saturday, the priests are profaning. They're profaning the Sabbath laws, yet they are guiltless. Now, why? Let's use our brains. Why are they guiltless? Why are they guiltless? It's because they were in the temple. They were in the temple. Why was David guiltless? Because the bread, a picture of God's presence, was in him. And the priests are guiltless because they are in the temple. Now look at what Jesus says in verse 6. I tell you, something or someone greater than the temple is now here. Something greater than the temple is now here. Who is Jesus talking about? Anybody? Who's he talking about? Himself. You see that? He's talking about himself. The Jewish temple and the tabernacle that was there before the temple were shadows. They were pictures of the real thing, which is Jesus Christ himself. If the priest, though they profane the Sabbath, are guiltless because they are in the temple and Jesus is on the scene now greater than the temple, what does it mean for those who are now in Christ? It means that everyone who believes in Jesus, listen, is Let's let that sink in. Everyone who believes in Jesus is now guiltless. No guilt, nor guilt's party friend condemnation. 
no fear, uh, no debt, no sin, no penalty, 100% guiltless. These are Jesus' own words here, guys. I'm not making this up. David was guiltless because a shadow of Jesus, the bread, was now in him. The priests were guiltless because they were in the temple. Let me ask you one more question. I've asked a lot of questions. I like for us to think this stuff through. What would you call it when even though you sin, you've messed up, you've done a thousand things that are evil, which the result is death, what would you call it when all of a sudden, because of Jesus, you are now guiltless? What would you call that? Grace? What else? There it is. Good news. And, and grace and mercy and all those things. But it's good news. It's good news. It's good. You say, well, that's not fair. No, it's not fair. We deserve death. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, you sin, the wages is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life where? In. Get that. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ Jesus our Lord. So in Christ, we're guiltless. In Christ, we're as righteous as Christ is himself. That, my friends, is good news. And so Paul is beside himself with, with this excitement because according to Epaphras' report, these pagan uh, uh, Colossians are believing this good news that in Christ, they're guiltless. They are believing in Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, the Colossians who believe in Jesus are now, listen, guiltless were they guiltless because of what they did or because of what jesus did it's all jesus it's all jesus it's not because they stopped sinning that they're guiltless it's because they've started believing that they're guiltless they heard the message from epaphras that without jesus they are guilty but in jesus they are guiltless and have life and they believed it they started believing it and so this old, beat-up, imprisoned Paul, he just gets excited and full of joy when he hears this, and he thanks God for it. And verse 9 goes on to say, back in Colossians 1, and so they're believing this, this gospel, this good news, that in Christ they're guiltless. And so from the day that we heard, Paul and Timothy, from the day that we heard this, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay, so here it is. Paul is praying that they are filled with the knowledge of God's will. The knowledge of God's will. Here it is, God's will. This thing that freezes us, this thing that get, trips us up. Paul's praying that they're filled with the knowledge of God's will. And I promise you that it's not whether or not they should play Mega Millions or pick four. It's not like, what, what is God's will? Which way should I go? Mega Millions, pick four. It's not, it's not that, I promise. It's much bigger. And so he says, I'm, we're praying, we haven't stopped praying, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So God's will is for us to walk in a manner worthy, fully pleasing to him. Now, we've got to stop here and do another timeout. Did we ever time back in from the other one? Let's time out again. We've got to stop here and make sure we're on the same page. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying right here. We are so filled with works-based religion 
that we read this one passage, this one phrase out of context, and it totally destroys everything that Paul has been saying and continues to say about the good news of Jesus. We saw Jesus say in Matthew 12 that anyone who is in him, anyone who believes in him is what? Guiltless, blameless, righteous. Anyone who is in him. Paul is ecstatic to see that these Colossian pagans are now believing in the good news of Jesus and likewise also are guiltless because they're in Christ. And so here in this passage at first glance, through our, the lens of our works-based religion glasses, it seems Paul is saying that God's will for them is for their behavior in this world to be at a certain level and that behavior then pleases God who's not already pleased with them. We have to get this settled, church. We have to get this settled. What is it that pleases God? Is it my behavior or is it my faith? What is it? And if you're confused about it, just go to Rome, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, which says, without good behavior, you are not pleasing to God. Is that what it says? I, hear, I see heads shaking and they should shake. No, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. It's faith that pleases him. Our faith in his son, Jesus. And by that, we are now blameless. Listen, if you believe that you are in Jesus, you, if you believe in Jesus, you are now in Christ. Because of that, you are guiltless. You are holy. You are sanctified. You are spotless. Even though we still sin daily, we are guiltless. Why? Because we are in Christ. The priests profane the Sabbath every day, every Sabbath. But they were guiltless. We, though we sin, we are guiltless because we are in Christ. So here's a question. How do you improve guiltlessness? How do you improve that? I mean, how do you improve Christ? Can your good deeds improve Christ? Can your actions make you more guiltless and more holy and more sanctified and more spotless than you already are in Christ? No, it can't. Listen, the enemy's biggest attack is to trick you to believe that you are not what you already are in Christ. In the coming weeks, we're going to see that this is the exact thing that's happening to these people in Colossae. They are struggling to see who they really are in Jesus. They're struggling to see what we just sang about, that Jesus is enough. And in our society in America, where moralism is king, we struggle to see the fullness of Jesus being enough. We read the words of Paul to walk worthy in a manner of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and we struggle, and we struggle. We read these words, and we, our immediate conclusion is, well, unless we do something in addition to trusting in Jesus, God's not pleased with us. Listen, if that's the case, then what sort of a Savior is Jesus? Either Jesus is all, or he's nothing at all, Right? He's either all or he's nothing at all. So we can't get tripped up into thinking that our approval by God is based upon our behavior, that a pleasure by God is based upon anything other than Jesus. And Paul makes this really, 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 really clear. And Paul's going to list four things that are this will of God. He lists four things that are the will of God. He lists four things that are pleasing to God. Now let's look at these four things real quickly. And so I just want to read, starting in verse 9, just keep us in context. And so from the day we first heard, we've not ceased praying for you, asking that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will, his will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. His will, 
to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And here is what walking in the Lord, fully pleasing to him, looks like. Four things. You ready for these? Number one, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. So if you're like, what's the will of God for, for the Colossians and probably for you? To bear fruit in every good work. Think with me. How much straining and effort does an apple tree, tree go through in order to produce apples? You guys love Childs? I love Childs. Walk through there, pick apples, peaches, all that stuff, right? Strawberries. Have you ever been walking through Childs and you've seen a, an apple tree like wiping the sweat from its brow because it just went through harvest? No. It doesn't work that way. So how does it work? How does a tree bear fruit? It just has to be what? Alive. Alive. A tree that's alive bears fruit. Listen, in Christ, Christ in you, he is your what? Life. He is your life. He has replaced your death sentence with his very life. And Paul is praying that God's will for these believers will be realized. And the first thing on this list of God's will for their life is that Christ's life in them would be manifest through him. Paul knows the pleasure of the Father. He knows the pleasure that the Father gets when he sees the life of his Son on display through the people that he's purchased on his own. But this doesn't come through labor. It's a result. Bearing fruit is a byproduct of life. Paul is saying that Christ's life in them, on display through them, is what God loves to see. It's what God loves to see. But it doesn't come by effort. It comes by life, Christ in us. So the first thing of God's will, God's will is for Christ in you to be on display through you. Number two. He lists them out. He makes it really easy. Increasing, God's will is for you now to be increasing in the knowledge of God. And this is a never-ending joyous journey. Paul's prayer is that they grow in their knowledge of God. And what is the first thing and really the biggest thing to know about God? The depths of who he is. The depths of his love, the depths of his mercy and of his grace that he bestows upon everyone who would ever believe in Jesus. Paul's saying that the will of God is that you are increasing with the knowledge, the reality of God himself. Paul knows that the more that believers are filled with the knowledge of God, the more they'll be transformed into the very image of Christ. So God's desire, God's will for these Colossians is that they're filled with the reality of God, that they understand how much God has done. How does that play into our normal Christian thinking of God's will? It doesn't really play into it at all. Paul is saying that God's will for you is for you to bear fruit, life that's in you, right? And for you to grow in your knowledge of God. There's a third thing, starting in verse 11. Paul says, okay, here's, here's what walking worthily means. It means there's life in you coming out. It means increasing in the knowledge of God. And number two, Three, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Here's the third deal, right? He's praying that the believers will be strengthened with the very power of God. Again, this is like fruit bearing. This is not done by the believers. It's done to the believers. I know we've talked a lot about English, but if you remember English, you got active verbs and passive verbs. This is passive. This is what's being done 
to the believers. They are being strengthened. They're not doing spiritual push-ups. They're being strengthened by God's own power so that they are able to stand underneath the turmoil that they will face. In just a few short years after Paul writing this letter, there was a terrible earthquake in Colossae. It totally destroyed the area. Now, Paul didn't know about the earthquake, I don't think, when he was writing this. But I'm sure that they needed strength, spiritual strength, to endure this terrible earthquake that came. And so Paul's saying that God's will for you, listen, God's will is that Christ in you come out through you, that you would grow in your knowledge of God and who he is and the, and the incredible depths of his love for you. And thirdly, that you are strengthened by God, that God strengthens you. And then lastly, right here, man, surely there's something for us to do, right? It's God's will for crying out loud. Number four, starting verse 12. And here's the fourth thing, giving thanks. Giving thanks to the Father, listen to this, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God knows how forgetful we are. He knows how easy it is for us to lose sight of what he's really done for us in Christ. God knows, Paul knows this, God's desire, his will, is that we always are giving thanks for what God has done. Why? Why are we to give thanks? Because, look, it's God who has qualified us. It's God who has qualified every believer to share in the inheritance of the saints, the inheritance of the other holy ones in the light. This inheritance, who is it? What is it? Jesus. Everything about him is what inheritance means. Everything about him is now ours when we, if we, believe in Jesus. His life Guess what? It's now our life. His righteousness is now our righteousness. His sonship, our sonship. His glory, our glory. His sanctification, our sanctification. His perfection, our perfection. Listen, his obedience, it's our obedience. His light is our light. His peace, guess what? It's our peace. His fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, etc., etc. It's our fruit. We partake. He has qualified us to partake in the inheritance of the light. He's everything. He's everything. You see, the Colossians had a very sim similar problem what we have. They had people telling them that they were not qualified until they did something in addition to Jesus. We have the same problem. We think that until we do certain things, we are not qualified. Please, if you don't believe me, I don't, I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm just asking you to believe what Paul wrote. Read it. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified. Who has qualified. And this is like English point number whatever. I'm sorry. But has qualified. That's past tense. It's past tense. It means it's happened and we now enjoy the reality of it. It's past tense. We are not being qualified as we do certain things. But the moment at which we first believed in Jesus, we were qualified. We were qualified. We were qualified. You say, but it's okay. Okay, well, okay. But sure, there's something for me to do. Certainly, there's something for me to do to really be a part of this. Certainly, there's something for me to do to, to, to fulfill the will of God in my life. Or what, what, what am I supposed to do? Well, I just look at this and I just see Paul say, give thanks. Right? Just give thanks. Giving thanks. He's the one who has made it all happen. He's the one who's qualified you. What role do you play in that? You sit there in your chair and you say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because he has qualified you. That's it. 
So, so, so God's will for the believers in Colossians and probably for us too is that Christ is manifest through you, the fruit of him. That your knowledge in God and all he's done for you increases by the revelation that God gives you. That God strengthens you for these difficult times that you might face with his eternal might and to thank him for qualifying you. To thank him for qualifying you. But, but, but what? Wait, wait, wait. What about what college to go to? What about what job to take? What about who to marry? What, what, what about, you know, should I file my taxes or not? Like, those are certainly important decisions. Don't get me wrong. You should pray through those. You should do, seek godly counsel. But when it comes to God's will for your life, here, remember this, our journey marker. God's will for you, <laughs> it's really more about him than you. Let that sink in for a second. His will for your life is really more about him than it is about you. His will is that his fruit, which is Jesus, is on display through you. You see that? It's, it's more about him than it's about you. His will is that his knowledge is being given to you. It's, it's more about him than about you. His will is that his strength be given to you. And that's, that's a, more about him than about you. His will is that his work of qualifying you is remembered and celebrated by you. See, that's, that's more about him than about you. Wherever you work, whatever job you take, you can do this because it's him who's doing it through you. Whoever you marry, this can happen. Wherever you live, man, should we live here? Should we live here? What's God's will? Wherever you live, this can happen. At the end of the day, God's will for you is to watch Christ shine through you. Whether you're a missionary in Africa or a missionary here at UVA as a nurse, a doctor, an accountant, whatever, God's will is for Christ to shine through you. Our band's going to come up and we're going to join in with some time of praise and worship, celebrating what God has done for us. This first song we're going to sing is, is that, is that uh, you came to my rescue. Okay, so when we sing this song, remember that he's the one who qualified you. And so this song is chosen to reflect what this thanksgiving that we can give right now for what he's done to qualify us. And, and then the, the last song that, that we're going to sing is simply, your grace is enough. Your grace is enough. The Colossian problem, our problem, is that we just think that it's not enough. We think that there's more that we have to do. Listen, that is a trap. That is a trap. That's a trap. A never-ending cycle of traps. Jesus is enough. As we unroll this letter of Paul, we're going to be shocked to see how much this thing is really not about us and not about what we bring to the table, but it's all about Jesus and what he has done, listen, to rescue us, to redeem us, to transfer us, to forgive us, to qualify us, to sustain us, to reconcile us, to sanctify us, and to mature us. And all that is just in chapter 1 of Colossians 1. Here's the type of church I want us to be. I want us to be a church as we're still just getting started. I want us to be a church that is ever ecstatic about people believing this good news that in Christ we're blameless. 
In Christ, we're righteous. In Christ, we're holy. In Christ, we're alive. This is why we have testimonies a lot of time on Sundays. This is why we celebrate baptisms, why we celebrate covenant meals in our homes. I want us to have the same excitement, the same joy that Paul had after 30 years of being beaten for Christ. And sometimes it's hard for us to just get excited and we're just driving to church on a Sunday morning in air conditioning. What's the difference? I think Paul really saw the fact that he, in Christ, is blameless. We struggle with that. We struggle with that. So how does this happen? How does this happen? It happens when we see that Jesus is everything. It happens when we see that in Christ we truly are blameless. Listen, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians that anyone who preaches a gospel other than this gospel of good news, other than this about the grace of God, other than the fact we are blameless in Christ, Paul says that that person should be accursed. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Paul is serious about this good news. He was serious, and I pray we as a church, we become very serious about this message. I pray that as we're stripped of our legalistic works-based thinking, we'll be able to see what Jesus has actually done and then live in that reality. We'll see Jesus living through us, We'll grow in our knowledge of God. We'll be strengthened for hardships and we'll be continuously giving thanks for what he has done because he has qualified us. And this is encouraging. This is amazing. This is life. Whatever you do in life, whatever choices, whatever jobs, whatever houses, on and on and on, the will is of God is that whatever the circumstances you find yourself in, you continue to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And through that, God's will is accomplished as he is glorified through you. We're gonna, I'm going to pray over us and if we're going to stand and sing if you want to talk with Richard or myself about what it means to believe in Jesus, what it means to truly be blameless in Christ. Feel free to come back and talk to us during this, these next two songs. Maybe you'd like to just connect, you know, over coffee or something like that at Mudhouse. That'd be fine too. But listen, we face the same struggles that the Colossians faced. We think that we've got to add to Jesus. And Paul is standing here with this big flashing neon sign saying, no, no. No, His grace is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for what You've done. We thank You that You have qualified us. We thank You that in Christ we are blameless. In Christ we have the very identity of Jesus. That we have been given everything that He was given. We have Jesus. He is our hope. He is our inheritance. He is everything to us. God, we don't seek heaven because we don't want hell. We seek you because in you there is life. Apart from you, there is death. Father, we seek you. We love you. We want you. Not because of, of consequences otherwise, though there are. Father, we seek you. We want you. We desire you because you are everything. And you are enough. So, Father, I just pray over your people that we would become a church that truly gets it, that truly sees that Jesus and what Jesus alone has done has qualified us, that we don't need others to come in and tell us, or even our conscience to tell us that, that we need to do things in order to be qualified. But you have qualified us. You have rescued us. Father, we thank you.
we sit here and we say thank you and we pray that your fruit in us will be on display through us. We pray that we would grow in this knowledge of you. We pray that we would be strengthened with your strength. And Father, we just thank you for what you've done. Our joy is to just thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.